0: Thank you for tuning in to the First Gen Hunter podcast, the go-to resource for those seeking to establish a foundation in hunting knowledge, skills, and tactics.
1: This is a really unique conversation that we're going to have. I feel like I'm talking to myself almost because the person I'm talking to has a lot of the same nerds out about all the same things that I do. In fact, I know our guest tonight, Judd, Judd McCollum of Working Class Bowhunter. I know how good of a person he is because um, he was willing to miss the first uh, episode of the brand new just, you know, premiered tonight on public television uh the new Ken Burns <laughs> documentary on uh American Buffalo. And uh I know it hurts you to not be watching that right now, Judd, so I really appreciate you coming on for I got this. Not recording. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. That's good. Um, you know, I I have the terrible problem with getting uh T V reception and honestly uh in the the age of what TV is now. If I'm gonna watch anything on TV, which is not very frequent, it's gonna be streamed. And uh I did I tried looking for it and I just cannot I tried doing the auto, you know, program to get all the all the local T V stations and I cannot get public television. So I think I'm just gonna have to wait and find it in a spot where I can stream it. But um I think it just kinda of sums it up though. The kind of people that we are. We're just totally interested in in uh the land, right? And yes. um, uh, you know, I think kind of a way to to paint that picture for our listeners, just to get things running and we'll kinda of introduce you as we go along. But
2: mm-hmm.
1: Judd, you got a new love for uh going out and finding remnant prairie seeds. Uh can you yes, kind of Like tell the listeners a little bit about like what you know why you do that what you know what's the significance all of that.
0: It just you know it just got to a point where I I'd go out in the woods and I'd look at all the plants around me and I'd know what you know honeysuckle was I know what autumn olive was walnut (laughs) maybe a couple of different kinds of oaks
2: but Mm -hmm. for the
0: most part most of what I was walking past I was totally clueless to you know anything about it as far as even putting a name to it knowing anything about how it interacts with you know know, the ecology of my ground or whatever but it just got to a point where I realized that this is a whole new thing for me to like dig into and learn Mm -hmm. where some of the other stuff you know like you know the fur bearers things like that I you know I've accumulated quite a bit of knowledge about that stuff and it's kind of kind of old hat I guess you would say but it's just, uh, as my college professor would say, it's a new land of the eye, hmm. uh, just a, a new way of seeing, and just, you know, and it filled up my September nicely, I'm usually just <laughs> pacing around my yard trying to stay out of the timber, yeah. Um, so yeah, I spent all of September driving around, looking at ditches, and trying to pick out different kinds of uh, seed to identify, and then wait till it was ripe, and then go and collect and save, so I was just uh, screening Evening Primrose before this call. <laughs> oh,
1: nice! That's that's yeah. awesome. Yeah, that's I like that. A new how how did he say that? a new land of the eye? Is that what he said?
0: A new land of the eye. Yeah, that was uh, from an author named I think William Least Heat Moon. Okay, uh, and that and that came from the uh, the proboscidian specialist at the Illinois State Museum that helped us with the mammoth
1: okay and yeah
0: So that that became a thing that we would say when we stumbled across you know a whole new way of thinking or looking at something or something like that it's a new land of the eye hmm. and it, that always, it stuck with me you know 18 years later however long it's been yeah i still use it regularly
1: yeah yeah that's that is a great thing i want to i definitely want to adopt that it, and i've experienced it too you know when you get into new stuff like remember when i first started shed hunting and you know well how a uh-huh hopelessly addicted to that i am um yep uh uh, when i first got into that it was it's like this childlike excitement of this stuff is just laying around and it's been laying around my whole life and in fact where i've grown up is where people who really care about this stuff wish they could be you know yeah when you when you grow up in the midwest when you're a little kid and probably because the way that, you know, summer vacation or spring break vacation shakes out and you're either going to Florida or Yellowstone or something like that. You just think everyone else has it so much better than you. But then as you get older, Mm -hmm. you start to realize, you know, all the, all the unique things that your home has to offer. And, uh, it's something that should be celebrated and, like what you've done and and what i've tried to do is something to seek out you know something to to go look for and so a new land of the eye yeah that's that's uh that that's something i can relate to for sure with with shed hunting and then of course you know being the first gen hunter podcast with figuring out that you can hunt these critters too and use them for food and and uh just try and be close to them you know and, mm-hmm. and, uh, that's kind of like what the theme of this whole episode is going to be. So I know this is a little bit different speed. Judd is a good hunter. He spends a lot of his time hunting. Uh, he wouldn't be a part of the working class crew if, uh, uh, if he wasn't, but, um, mm-hmm. his motives for being in the woods, I think, I don't think I've found anyone with as similar motives for, for hunting as, uh, would be Judd and, uh what the only other person I can really think of is probably uh, Luke Fritch, who I really want you guys to meet each other sometime because uh, Luke looks at things Mm -hmm. the the exact same way we do. And uh, there's such a deep connection there that um, is beyond just like going to a place to get something, you know? And I don't think that Mm -hmm. that's necessarily a, a wrong way of looking at it, you know? But I think you're missing out on something if that's all the further you get with your your mindset. You know, you're you're not you're not able to savor it as much, I guess. Um not that yep. not that uh you know, we have the right perspective and nobody else does, but we have a I think a a different way of, of valuing it and I think it allows for a deeper enjoyment. Would you agree with that? Mm-hmm.
0: I agree with that wholeheartedly, yep.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, you know, maybe a good way to paint this picture is a couple of years ago you shot a really nice buck, and this was actually before we met, uh, but uh, we mm-hmm. were aware of who, I think we were following each other on Instagram and Facebook and so forth. But I'd gone into Old Barn Taxidermy, a sponsor of this show and a sponsor of Working Class Bowhunter. And uh, yep. I, I'd gone in there to pick up, my 2021 buck i think it was and uh there on the wall is uh judd's 2021 buck and uh that was shot on kind of your home stomping grounds right
0: yep about a uh, less than a mile from my house wow that's awesome
1: can you uh yeah the, let's just walk through that story of that buck and then i want to talk about the significance of shooting a buck in a spot that you really care about so can you kind of just walk us through how that hunt went down
0: i can i was looking for a little bit bigger deer than that um <clears throat> so it had to I be a pretty big deer because
1: that was a really nice buck
0: <laughs> yeah yeah it was a huge one actually <laughs> I, I found his deadhead and i think he was a 192 growth.
1: Oh, my goodness. What, yeah, what do you think, all think killed him?
0: I think so. He's Back in this great, big, deep hollow, um, old growth, it's never been logged. It's got super steep sides, and it's a lot bigger topographic, topographical feature than we usually have around here.
2: Mm. And I
0: think what probably happened was my buck-to-doe ratio around here is so off, I bet I got five does to every buck,
2: Whoa. that
0: the, the rut just lasted forever Mm -hmm. and i think he he was down there in this deep hollow running and chasing does um and either he just got so worn down and laid down and and died or he was so far from any good feed other than like twiggy brows and stuff like that and the snowstorm came and he just laid down and that was it for him
2: Hmm.
1: i've never thought i've never thought of that that's a great point when you're buck to doe ratio is that far off you're actually putting more you know because a lot of times people think oh there's so many does now the bucks don't have to mm-hmm. fight and you know they're not they're not being as territorial yeah but they're also chasing <laughs> does from you know mid-october when the earliest ones come into heat probably to uh mm-hmm. um, you know december you know late oh you i've know, got red mid-
0: activity on video and and uh, February sixth. Whoa! Out my kitchen window, I've got about six bucks following a fall of the year.
1: That's and fighting crazy. A
0: follower, yeah, yeah. So that's really, really hard on the bucks. You know, mm-hmm. a rut running that long. Definitely. Um, But but back to the to the story. So I was hoping to run into this big ten pointer, this hundred ninety two inch ten pointer, and something was thrashing um brush behind me in a really thick spot where i couldn't really see hmm. and so i'm craning my neck around um to see what's going on back there and i turn around to look at the food plot i'm sitting on and the little uh mock scrape that i've got there and here's this buck standing in it and his his body was so big i was looking at him and i had trail camera pictures of this deer and i'm thinking. You know, I'm not sure if his rack is, is what I want it to be. And I know that sounds crazy because hmm. you've seen the mount. Yeah, it's he's good awesome. 57 inch mount. He's a big <laughs> buck. But his body was so massive it made his rack look small. And I was having kind of a hard time clocking whether or not, you know, he was kind of meeting my goals that year or whatever. Sure. But he stood there and I'm looking at him and I'm just like, you know, a bird in the hands were two in the bush. And all of a sudden he looks up like directly at me because I'm directly between him and whatever's thrashing brush. And he looks right at me and his antlers are out past the ears. I kind of get a a gauge for the size of is, And I think, okay, well, I'd like to shoot him. So he turns and he starts paying a little bit more attention to this mock scrape and starts rubbing on a locust tree that's knocked down. And he, he actually picked up his near side front leg and kind of held it in the air out in front of him while he raked a tree off to his oh right. Oh, man, it just, and it just opens it up. And just completely opened up the vitals. Yeah, I was like, all right, <laughs> this is your decision. So, you know, I put, put the arrow right through him. He kind of jumped and spun around like something goosed him. Because I use a real, I think it's just over the legal uh, diameter Okay. Of what we can have. I think it's like an inch and a quarter fixed blade. Sure. And then really low profile fleshings. And so I think the last probably four deer I've shot haven't even really registered. They were hit by an yeah. arrow. They kind of jump and turn around and look for some whatever hit them and then start getting the wobbles right there. And it's really handy because there's not much of a blood trail if yeah. that's fatal.
1: Right. I did
0: have a buck last season. I dropped uh dropped the arrow right in the middle of his back strap as he was facing hard away from me and the arrow came out the front of him somewhere and that buck's still alive.
1: Oh my goodness.
0: And I'm not I'm not sure how, but so that, wow. you, you know, using that small broadhead does have its drawbacks. But it's sure. it's money when you've got a broadside shot. So, you know, this buck, I shot him, he gets the wobbles, he kinda you know, he goes about 15 feet and stumbles into this little ditch that's headed toward a creek, and um, I waited till dark got down, and I grabbed a hold of his rack to pull him out of this ditch, and I think he's the first buck I've ever shot that I could not move at all by myself.
1: Mm. Just a <laughs> so massive...
0: I, oh, gosh. Huge, like, black Angus body is enormous. <laughs> in the picture, it looks like he's got a basketball shoved up in his neck. <laughs> <laughs> and so I called a couple of buddies. He's, it's, it's ridiculous. So I called a couple of buddies, and they helped me pull him out of this ditch and get him onto a deer cart and take him. And we um, put him up on the chain hoist with a scale, hmm. and he was 300 pounds with his head still on the ground.
1: Whoa. That's insane. So uh,
0: I— immediately you know we, we got him cleaned up and everything the next morning i ran him straight over to old barnwell what i should have done is taken him over to presley's and won their big buck contest yeah, first and got definitely. myself and flying and all that stuff and then gone to old barn so, yep, yep. <laughs> that's that's my plan for next time but it was a it was a great hunt you know usually uh a, a buck has to i don't know he has to kind of do something that it's hard to put into words it kind of has to happen my dad wasn't a really a deer hunter he was a waterfowler
2: mm-hmm. and
0: his grandpa instilled in him that um past shooting geese isn't goose hunting mm. you know you got to make them hook their wings and come in yeah. so i have to have some indication that i you know i actually set something up to fool this deer and put him where i wanted them and it Sounds yeah. kind of a little more cat and mouse than it is, but I, I have to feel like what I did that I earned that deer. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I really don't have much interest in shooting at a buck that's screaming past me twenty miles an hour, chasing the doe in the rut because yeah. you know, I, even though I was there, it's it's I don't know. I don't,
1: yeah. No. I, First I,
0: of all, I wouldn't take that shot, but you get what I'm saying.
1: Yeah. No. I I for sure get it. It it feels more genuine, more earned if you can, you know, tie your skill to to what happened. You know, I think. Well, yep. And like you said, there's different degrees of of you know. I've never had this conversation. I don't think on this podcast. And this is episode 181 that we're recording right mm-hmm. now. Um, mm-hmm. So this is the first time this conversation has ever come up, but there it's true. I've thought about this before. There's varying degrees to like how you've earned something. So for instance, I've killed deer on the ground and Mm -hmm. I just happened to choose the right spot and it all worked out. And that was very rewarding. Um, mm-hmm. I've killed deer from a tree stand that somebody else put up and yes, it was very rewarding in the sense that I chose the right time to be in that tree stand and, you know, I read the conditions right or played the wind right or whatever, but there was something mm-hmm. that felt like I I missed part of this process, you know, and, and yeah. not that I want to take that away from <clears throat> myself, anyone, myself included, you know, uh, that like it's uh-huh. anytime you can, anytime you can fool a deer, I think you're there. That's a big accomplishment. I mean, they're just, they're, they're good at living and, uh, you can, uh-huh. if, and they have senses that are so much stronger than that of our own. And if you can, you can slip by that, you know, like that's an accomplishment, but just to like fully there for the whole thing you know just i don't know There, there is definitely something a little bit more rewarding and then taking that to even to the next level like you're saying are you shooting well I here's a thought that i just had the other day um mm-hmm. i was thinking uh because right now i don't know maybe you've seen this on social media too there's a lot of talk about how the deer pattern is very irregular right now for this time of the year. And, and obviously someone would be like, yeah, October lull. I'm just not, a, I'm not a huge, I don't really buy into the October lull that much. Um, I think it's, no. it's property dependent. And a lot of it has to do with hunting pressure and, and yep. uh, what's going on in the crop world. Um, mm-hmm. But right now I think there's a pretty big acorn crop, across the country it just seems oh, like shoot. yeah yep it just seems like it, most years if there's a lot of acorns dropping in let's say massachusetts there's a lot of acorns dropping in illinois or in iowa you know it's just mm-hmm. the, the, uh, one of the weird mysteries of nature how these trees <laughs> all get on the same schedule i did hear a good point on this um this was on a mediator episode back this summer they talked about how you don't want to be the one oak tree that drops all your acorns on the off year because those are all your little chances of offspring which is what yeah. determines if something is successful in the biological world and yep. and uh if all your acorns get eaten because you're the only tree dropping that year then you're not your your genetic line is not going to continue probably but right. but uh you know so there there is that explanation but anyways I've heard that that's got deer patterns off and I've seen that, you know, and, and also we had such a harsh drought, at least here in this part of the country in August, um, really through July, it was, it was pretty wet, at least here where I live. Um, but in August it rained on my birthday, which is August 6th. And then I don't think it rained again Mm -hmm. until September, (laughs) you know, it's just like, it was so dry. And then we had, do you remember when like just a few days before season opener, which is October 1st in Illinois and Iowa, of course, uh, we had like those 90 degree days and it just, it (laughs) made, it made the harvest ready now you know like uh mm-hmm. corn was starting to cannibalize itself a little bit and farmers had those earlier varieties they had to get in right away and so you just saw all all these crops going down literally like like a week in some cases because there were some other hot days like 2 or 3 weeks out there's like farmers that were harvesting you know a week after labor day in some and cases Yep. Yeah. And so anyways, all that to be said, this last Saturday I was sitting in a tree stand that was just days away, less than a week away from uh uh when I shot a doe in the exact same spot last year. And it was mm-hmm. total ghost town. And you know how when you're in ghost town, you you just can feel it like there is no way I'm seeing a deer today. Like you went in there thinking like there's a chance, but then like when, when the woods wake up and you're just like looking around you a little bit, you're just like, it is just, it's just dead. You know, I had this, (laughs) I had this thought. I was like, well, you know, I'll just wait it out until the normal, like, you know, I have three kids, so I, I got to hunt when I get a chance. And uh, I was like, Mm -hmm. I'm going to, I'm going to wait it out until this, you know, the prime time is done, then I'm gonna head back. And I thought to myself, there's no way anything's gonna come out, but what if like a neighbor went flying by on a four wheeler or, you know, out in their tractor or something and then pushed some deer this way? Maybe, maybe then I'd get a chance. And then I started thinking to myself, kind of along the lines of what you were just saying, but how would that feel? You know what I mean? Like, what I really, would I really feel like, man, you, you accomplish something, uh, by getting that shot when all this herd of deer were pushed this way because some guy went to go, you know, uh, check on his cows or something. And yeah, I don't know. It, 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 it it's an interesting, I don't know what the answer is, but you definitely make a good point.
0: Hmm. And I don't know what about that. I think in my mind that probably only applies to a buck, I guess. Sure. Because I'm happy to shoot a doe that looks up at me, a doe that, mm. you know, blows at me. Yeah. Pretty much any doe that comes in range that has a good <laughs> size brisket on her is gonna get an arrow.
1: Yeah. That's some good that's some good eating right there.
0: <laughs> yeah, regardless of the circumstances, she's gonna I'm gonna let one fly at her, but, you <laughs> especially, know, it's just, it's, especially
1: if they're blowing at you.
0: Oh gosh, yes. Yeah. Yeah, there's a, there's been a couple of times I've been shotgun hunting where uh, this this one time I went out after work and I was walking across the pasture behind my house, and it just so happened that I sent bumped, I don't know, probably eight does out of this little patch out in the middle, and seven of them walked um, to the main timber, and then the last one stopped and started blowing and stomping oh. and spinning, and I was... I remember thinking, I was like, do I want my hunt to end right now, or do I want to go sit? <laughs> and as I'm thinking that, my monkey brain pulled the trigger and shot this doe. <laughs> like, okay, well, I, I guess that's that. <laughs> <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> Those were fighting
1: words. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah, like the 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 monkey lizard brain, whatever. Way down the base of my brain then was just like me hungry, shoot now. And just did it for me.
1: Oh man. Yeah, well
0: dropped her.
1: Well, it's there we all live by principles, right? <laughs> yeah. If she's yeah. if she's blowing, she's going. And uh that's yeah. that's uh <laughs> that's how it goes there. Yep. So, no, I I understand that rule for sure. But yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. It like I said, I don't think we've ever had that conversation on this podcast, but it's it is a it's a really good point. And you know what? I think too there's just things that that are not things but routes people go down as they spend more time hunting. Maybe it's to for the you know the sportsmanship side of it where you want to increase the challenge you know kind of like the guys that pick up a, a you know traditional archery setup and start yeah. hunting with that you know i think there's some guys that go down that row some guys swear off gun hunting for the rest of their life some guys mm-hmm. um, maybe uh, go to only primitive firearms like like not even inline muzzle loaders like i like to use but like flip locks, you know, There are, or, uh, yeah. yeah. You know, there's, there's all sorts of ways. Uh, in fact, there's a guy I want to track him down. I think he's the last, um, confirmed, uh, per, uh, person who, uh, killed a deer with an addle. Um, down in Missouri back in 2015 I think I'm trying to find his contact information because I think it'd be that'd be an awesome story to hear but uh, uh, you know there's there's all these different ways that we can up the ante I guess and of course Mm -hmm. another one is probably the most common one and this is probably the one that I would align with me the most is chasing other species you know trying to trying to go to other states and and get after other, other big game species and, and try your hand at that. But it's all good though. And, and, you know, I think what you described there was, was, uh, you know, a good way to kind of expand upon previous experiences and always trying to better yourself and, and, uh, maybe make yourself more like the original caveman hunter, you know, who really had, had, uh, his meal was on the line. His life was on the line, basically, and that of his family's. Yeah. If he was going to be eating, he had to be a really skilled hunter. So I think it's I think yeah. it's a, a great point. Uh, you know, we're going to do a hard pivot here because I think it's worth mentioning. Okay. You have a really interesting job. Could you kind of describe <laughs> your job
0: to the listeners? So the, the elevator pitch is I sell everything from single uh, pieces of barn wood to um, nearly dried-in structures, hmm. um, so that's the short of it. I um, dismantle usually for the purpose of re-erecting timber frame barns.
1: That's awesome! Um, that's so cool. And
0: so stick, you know, later stick built barns aren't out of the question, but we try to avoid those a little bit. Um, sure, but. But, yeah, we travel all over the country dismantling and then travel all over the country re-erecting <laughs> these timber frames as homes and businesses and pretty much anything else you'd want them to be. Yeah, um, I've got a, one that's going to be an art studio out on the tip of Long Island that I've got to do here sometime. Um, I just put up one as a party barn down on Table Rock Lake down in uh, Missouri. Um, I've installed floors in Key West – that I've run, uh, Wow! yeah, I've been all over the place, done all kinds of stuff. Uh, and some of them, that, that trip down to Key West, when I, we were finishing that floor where it would take about an hour to put a coat on and then wait for it to dry for 24 hours, I got to fish. Oh, I got man. to run around down there and chase, chase key deer around with my camera. And I did all kinds of fun stuff.
1: That is cool. Um,
0: put a frame up in Texas and I got to hunt pigs all day evening after work and all night if i wanted to that was a blast oh, so i mean the the job gets me into some pretty cool spots to be honest with you but you know it's never the same thing two days in a row i've got a wood yard to, to look after i've got a shop that um i can produce just about any uh anything out of by myself if i have to i've got it set up to for a uh, one-man operation if need be and then I've got all the road work, um, you know, traveling to dismantle and re-erect and do all sure. that stuff. So I'm always moving around. And I, I don't think before uh, last year and the year before, I don't think I was home for the rut since I started this job. Oh, which it, it's okay because I really like late season hunting. I think that the big ones are a lot more predictable when it's really cold and nasty out. Mm. And it's a better use of my time. And it's a, a lot more fun to try and hunt from the ground. And What I've been trying to do when conditions allow is follow them out to feed into the, into a cut bean field in a snowstorm. Mm. I've done that two or three times and got really close. And, you know, it gets to the point where your rangefinder doesn't work for blowing snow.
1: Oh, and yeah. you're
0: get, kind of guessing yardage. And the only reason I get busted is because You know, the deer that comes out behind me that wasn't looking really hard and thought I was another deer gets too close and realizes (laughs) I'm not a deer (laughs) and freaks out. So that's so much fun. The odds are garbage, the success rate's absolute garbage, but it is so much fun. That's kind of my goal right now is to get a buck doing that.
1: Yeah, that's awesome, man. Well, maybe uh, <laughs> maybe you can start out by uh, doing that late Illinois muzzleloader hunt and uh, bring a muzzleloader with you. Then once you get that down, then you can uh, try it with the bow. But no, that's yeah. that's really cool. I love adding little challenges. That kind of goes into what we were just talking about. But, but no, that's uh, that's such a cool job. What's the oldest barn you guys have? Uh, we just did- dismantled
0: just did one in Maine that the customer's, um, I don't know how far back, I guess you could call it ancestor at this point, was given this land with this barn on it by King George.
1: Whoa. If I'm not
0: mistaken. The barn was built in the 1750s by shipbuilders.
1: Oh, man.
0: Yeah, and without getting into the minutia of how these barns are built, most of the timber frame barns are pretty easy. They're uh, um, in cross section. They have what we call bents, where they've got a post on the inside, post on the interior, and then a tie beam holding the two sides together. Okay. And then each one of those bents lines up with uh, with a mortise on a wall plate that holds them all together lengthwise. Mm-hmm. So this this barn built by shipbuilders was backwards to that. So we ended up having to take what were the tie beams off the top of wall plates and take it down from the side, which made the single pieces. They would have been the full, I don't know what 60 feet long that I would have had to pick up with a machine and move. So what we ended up doing was just separating each single post and its components and doing that one by one, which took a long time, but it was the only way to do it without cutting some trees down so we had a lot of history on that job we had a lot of challenges on that job but it was a it was a really good time it was really neat there was just some little things like each one of the exterior posts had a perfect flare at the top hmm. that you know only a shipbuilder would have spent the time to to do and make make you know multiples of extremely regularly like you know, they they would have all been within a quarter inch of each other at any given dimension, and that just blew my mind. Wow. It, it was really neat.
1: Now, someone's probably wondering, why on earth would you take down such a, you know, such a historical, historically significant barn? But the answer to that is these things are, I mean, you're rescuing them, That you're rescuing them in a way, right?
0: Pretty much. So the the guy, the client, mm-hmm. um, had sold this parcel that had this barn on it to another couple who was really cool, and we hung out with him while we were on that job. But what he wanted to do was move it about, as the crow flies, probably 200 yards onto his own property, Okay. but there's a swamp in that 200 yards, so it, <laughs> instead of being able to jack it up and skid it where he wanted it to we he's got to take it about a mile and a half around a corner sure and then back down a lane to put it where he wants it so he contacted us to dismantle it and it's in uh, in storage at his place right now we're going to put that up probably next summer
1: okay man that is so cool <clears throat> and that had <laughs> to be did it like give you chills to be undoing stuff that was put into place by people you know from well over 200 years ago really 270 years ago right yeah seventeen fifties. Yeah. yeah
0: what was really neat was um russell the client gave us the names of his uh that we might encounter i guess uh, okay scratched in a piece of wood or we found a uh, a bit, What was basically a business card, it was probably a six-by-eight piece of cardstock that had all the information about um, this livery stable owned by a guy named Ware, which was Russell's great-great-great-grandfather, I think. Okay. And so we found that. We found names. All the names he was looking for were all scratched on this barn somewhere. Which, you know, wow. we removed the boards for him and we all put in a special spot away from all of the other flat lumber that he was going to have remilled and stuff like that. So, yeah, sure. we found out a, a, a painting, um, potentially, of one of his ancestors that was on an old piece of canvas that had been separated from the frame in there. Oh, so, wow. that was, there was a lot going on in that barn. Um, usually, I don't find near that kind of, you know, stuff of significance to the customer or sure. to history, I guess, but that one was just loaded. It was really neat.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Just, just, uh, one of the coolest jobs really. And I, I mean, it's, it's a hard job. It's a, uh, that's a job that requires a lot of skill and a lot of physicality, but I think that's good. You know, I think it's good to work hard. Um, it when, I, when I made my big career change, I basically went from <laughs> a desk job to, I wanted something like that. That was going to physically, you know, be demanding and man, it's, it's paid off so much. I'm so much healthier now (laughs) since I, since I'd made that change. And, um, it's just, it's just good for us. But I think it also goes hand in hand with really the theme of this, which is this episode, which is living close to the land. And, Mm -hmm. um, I love, going to so uh, tell me if you can relate to this when you go to do a a job like that like you're going on somebody's land you're one of Mm -hmm. the the very few people who have the permission and the access to go there Mm -hmm. and that's significant i feel that significance when i like when we're planting prairie for someone or um i get called to come do a property consultation i'm putting in some prairie um Mm -hmm. or some some uh deer habitat or pheasant habitat quail habitat whatever it may be and i get access to this person's farm like i feel very privileged Do do you sense that too like yes i do and and you man i don't i think it must go back to like some primal aspect of what it means to be a human and uh, you ever hear the the I think there was a study that kind of like brought this point up an anthropological study that people you know of probably the early Americans is what the study pertained to but like Mm -hmm. why did these people go where they went around the country you know they could follow their they could kind of follow their travels. I think a lot of it's based on, uh, you probably know this Jed, so correct me if I'm wrong here, but um, a lot of it I think is based off of um, like their stone tools and where mm-hmm. the parent rock for that, for those stone tools is known to be located. Like they can even yep. go to like ancient quarry sites where people would have gotten that stone. And let's say they found it down in Utah that the quarry for that is in Utah, but then they found the projectile point like in Minnesota or something. Right. Yeah. And, and so we have ways of knowing that people traveled around and there's been a lot of speculation, of course, everything's speculation, but they found that or, or they hypothesized that, one of the main reasons people went somewhere is just because they wanted to see it. <laughs> you know, they, <laughs> they, 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 just wanted to, they just wanted to see what was over the next hill. And yep. I think that's a big reason why, why I enjoy that privilege of being able to go on other people's ground. I mean, would you agree with that?
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's one thing to just buzz down the highway and, you know, and pass places, but then, there's been a couple of barns that I've done that I've driven past my whole life. You know, they've been off the road two or 300 yards and I Mm -hmm. don't really know what's going on right around them. But then I don't know if it's like this for you, but you know, I get to add that piece to my mental map. Yeah. Once, once I've been there, you know, I can travel around everywhere I've been in my mind and it's kind of neat to be able to do that. And you know, it's, it's, I don't know. It's, it's it's a lot of fun. And I do feel that. And with the barns, it's kind of like, you know, unless somebody has just moved into the property and decided they want the barn gone for some reason, it's usually no matter how much they cleaned it out, you're going to find some connection to the people, some mm. connection to their family in the building yeah. that they might not have even known there, whether, you know, the it has a, it's a bank barn and has a basement, and maybe they put up some in- insulation on the bottom of the joists, and then there's a loft floor on top of that. Well, now there's a cavity in there in between the joists, and somebody's always sticking something in those mm. cavities, if there's a loose board or something like that. Yeah. You know, we find boxes of family pictures or all kinds of stuff, you know, aside from the jars of old weed and playboys and stuff like that that people <laughs> hide <there. laughs> uh, all the contraband all <laughs> the contraband yeah oh yeah. gosh the whiskey bottles can't you would not believe <laughs> the whiskey bottles we find
1: well you know that's funny unreal that you say, that's funny that you say that because i was doing some uh demo work with a a friend of mine john rasty uh, before we moved into our current house, we had to get the house rewired. It's the old family farmhouse. Mm-hmm. And uh, been in the family since 1927. House, um, yep. as, as best as we know from the abstract, the oldest part of the house, which isn't as old as I thought, but 1910. And yeah. But, I mean, it's Iowa, too. And Iowa has only been a state since 1846. So it really you know to go much earlier than that you're you're really in some ancient history as far as settled iowa goes but for sure um we were tearing around tearing out this ceiling this kind of drop ceiling like really old drop ceiling It was a mm-hmm. it was a plaster and lath ish yeah. I say ish because, you know, since it was in the basement, whoever originally put it up there, they didn't really put a ton of effort into it, I don't think. And, uh, because <laughs> it was a basement, you know, what's a basement back in 1910? And, uh, yeah. we were tearing out around it, and all of a sudden, my, my, uh, friend, uh, Rasty, he knocks some boards loose and out falls a, uh, cigarette tin. That somebody must have stuffed up there and they were probably going down to the basement and maybe their wife didn't know they had a little smoking habit or something. <laughs> they, were, yep. they were lighting up down in the furnace room. I don't know why, but it was jammed up in there. And uh, <laughs> you know, all those all those bad habits, all all that contraband gets jammed up in those spots. So but yeah, yep. that's that's really interesting that you're you're finding that. And and just like when whenever I'm I'm like a bird dog getting cut off the chain when I get onto a new place. It's like, I I feel like a little adrenaline dump, like this is ground I've never walked before. You know, there could be, you know, like, I don't even know what I'm going to find here, but you know, usually it's when I get permission to go shed hunting on a new piece or something, you know, you're, you're just like looking at the potential of the land and how it lays and, and
0: oh, there just, could just be anything there if the people know, that gave you permission never cared a thing about sheds. There could be you know years worth of sheds that yeah. rolls over with them. You know.
1: Yep, and oh, I, you know so I've been <laughs> I've been I've been fortunate enough to have a few of those times where you're finding new and old sheds just everywhere, and it's like this place yep. is heaven. <laughs> 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 but. No, I, it's it's so hard though. I think we're I think we're doing a pretty good job describing what it means to live closely. And I hope people are getting like getting excited about it too. But like going and, and getting these deep connections are so meaningful. And we'll wrap up at the end of this podcast and explain, you know, why we think it's important that people develop this. But I want to throw in another story here that's similar to what Judd's talking about when he's finding evidence of past human activity cuz i really think that that is what's most interesting yes i love finding sheds and no there's probably nothing i would uh rather find than a uh um <laughs> iowa elk shed or an iowa stag moose shed or something like that oh man <laughs> that's a that is my that is my holy grail that i really want to find sometime but but um <laughs> i When you find something that connects back to people, it's just hard to beat that. And um, my friend, Luke Fritch, we do uh, at least one shed hunt. We try and get, we used to do a lot when I, when we were living close to together, we taught at the same school, but um, we still try to get, since I've moved to the family farm a couple hours away. Uh, we still try to get together every spring and do a shed hunt or two together. And, um, I remember this one time he took me over to this really old hedgerow and Mm -hmm. he, um, said, Hey, look at this. And you can see because hedge is so stinking durable. Um, it lasts forever. Uh, he said, see these missing sections of this hedge tree. And he's mm-hmm. like, "Look, you can still see the cut marks here." He's like, "My ancestors cut fence posts out of this tree." And, no way! Uh, yeah, yep. Oh
0: my gosh!
1: And that's, so that's cool. something that just like sends a shiver down your spine. It's like I'm it standing. You know, you're standing here where somebody a hundred plus years ago was sweating and. And had dreams and had purposes, and had plans and a project to complete, and they were doing it mm-hmm. right there in that same dirt on that very tree, yep. and try and take that away from Luke <laughs> it's yeah it, it that's not going anywhere, you know what I mean like no. that is that is so. Oh, man, it's I can't even really explain it. Just how meaningful that is, and so when you when you feel that deep connection, and then we tie this. People are probably like, "I thought this was a hunting podcast." Well, we're gonna get there. <laughs> when you go to that ground, and Luke and I have found sheds very close to where that those hedge trees are. Mm-hmm. Those sheds carry a ton of meaning, more so for Luke even than than for me because it's his yeah. family's spot, you know. But <laughs> when you killed that buck, that was on ground that you feel deeply connected to, right? Yes. Yeah. And anytime you do that, and, and I I got to imagine, I don't know if that's your biggest buck, but I got to imagine it's up there. Uh, mm-hmm. because it was yep. a really nice buck. Um, did did that connection, like, did, is that something you thought about afterwards? Like, man, I'm glad this happened here.
0: Oh, I, you know, I think about that. It doesn't take something as significant as killing a buck for me to feel that way. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, uh, yep. We, we we talked about the seed gathering and and I've been walking around the whole farm. There's a possum about to go up on my porch. Anyway, <laughs> I'm sitting in my truck, big one. Um, but yeah, I, I'm going around this farm that I've known like the back of my hand for about ten years now. It's my wife's family's place, and they're just I'm so grateful that they allow me to do whatever mm. on it as long as yeah, I don't hurt awesome. cows, corn, or walnut trees. Yeah. But, <laughs> <laughs> but uh so I just going around this place and it's a new land of the eye. Like, oh here's a hayfield I walked across a hundred times. Look at this ironweed that I've walked by. That's yeah. had to have always been here. Yeah. And, you know, I get to pick it out and look at it and look at how it's grown and why is it still here? Oh, this little piece didn't get cut the third time and so it made a go at, you know, putting yeah. on a flower right toward the end of the summer and it's just little stuff like that even gets me. Yeah. Um, finding a lot of different artifacts and stuff on the place. Um, that gets me, uh, just, there's a whole, um, up one of the draws here, there's a whole carboniferous forest coming out of the rock and the clay. Whoa! And that, that just, it, that's really, you're going to have to come see that. That just yes. blows my mind. Yes. Definitely want to see um, that. <laughs> some of the best impressions are in the clay. <laughs> And so there is nothing you can do to preserve that. It's just ephemeral. You just have to be there and you have to look at Mm -hmm. it. And maybe you can get the shadows and the light to play right to get a good picture of some stuff. But just seeing all these, you know, these, oh, I don't know, calamites stems and, and rhododendron fronds and stuff like that, it's just wild. And, you know, it's all here within, I don't know, two, three miles of my house. Yeah. And I, I think about that all the time. and I think about how strange it is that, you know, over the course of what we've done to the, to the wildlife in this country and then the efforts to restore it, that there are, you know, deer that are within a mile of my house. that I've never seen before. Like I just yeah. got a picture from a neighbor of a giant buck that I've been hoping to see and he's in a field next to my house. Hmm. Most of the time and I've, I've never seen him out there and I don't go on the neighbor's property, so I wouldn't see him in their timber or anything, but he's probably closer to my house than where I'm hunting in the timber behind my house. Wow. And that just kind of blows my mind that, you know, that an animal that size is still so mysterious in, in this context that we have such dominion, oh. I guess, over the land. It's, it just, it, I think about that all the time, how how kind of
1: strange that is. Yeah. Yeah. No, <laughs> you know what I, I, mean? I, yeah, I'm right there with you. Like I feel honored when I see, when I go out on the family farm and I don't own the farm, but kind of the same, same deal as you, it's my family's farm. It's my grandfather's farm. And mm-hmm. he lets me he, kind of the same rules that you have, you know, <laughs> um, don't damage the walnuts, the corn or the beans. And, yep. and, uh, <laughs> We, you know, when, when I go out there and I see these deer, it might even just be a, like tonight, I, Jonas and I saw a doe and her yearling with her, and I just feel honored that they're there, you know, like mm-hmm. this, this is on within my family's property boundaries. They have found this place suitable to exist and, <laughs> yeah. and, 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 you know, if it's a mature animal live out their lives and what a unique thing, you know? And yeah, that's a, that's a good way of putting it. That, that, that example, that buck. And then, yeah, that's the other part is, um, seeing deer you've never seen before. Maybe you've never got them on trail camera or, or, uh, maybe, maybe you've just haven't seen them while scouting or hunting, yeah, that's always a, an awesome surprise. That was the buck that I killed last year. Was mm-hmm. this really gnarly old buck? I still got to pull his tooth. To I got three teeth to send into Matson's, and um, I'm going to send it in. We're going to do a. I already interviewed him once on the podcast. We're going to do a follow up episode after I send my teeth in, and we'll talk about like the results and stuff. But um, mm-hmm. the this really gnarly old buck comes walking in through the timber and, and the significance here for me is not growing up hunting. This timber was magical to me when I discovered it. Um, Mm -hmm. I'd never, I never really understood. And my grandpa retired from farming when I was about 10 And then the ground was Mm -hmm. cash rented to other farmers and still is. But I remember riding around, you know, 10 years old, you have some decent memories that, that you can recall. I remember riding around in the tractor, the combine with him and seeing some of the wooded areas And thinking, wow, this is really cool. Grandpa owns, in my mind, everything was just forest. You know, Grandpa owns forest. You know, and (laughs) and I remember this time when we went to cut firewood because my family used to burn a lot of wood when I was a kid. We had a wood burning stove, Mm -hmm. and um, we would every Thanksgiving or Christmas that we'd be here, we'd be out cutting probably uh, old black locusts that were grandpa was trying to get rid of, you know, and, uh, and mulberry. Um, and my dad and him were, were cutting wood and there wasn't much to do until it was time to stack the wood in the back of the truck, you know, then, so my brothers and I, we kind of wandered off and we found this for the first time ever. We found this old railroad trestle that that was, yeah, it was part of the rock Island line and uh it was built right around uh the Civil War and I remember walking on that thing and I felt like I was the luckiest kid on the planet that my grandpa owned an ancient old railroad trestle and <laughs> and uh you know just like seeing all that it like started this this passion in me and mm-hmm. um there used to be and I I want to know how to make this post at some point because it's pretty poignant. Uh I think I said that word right. Um there's there used to be a pond and that pond was it, it was basically just a frog pond. Um I think grandpa uh-huh. said that there were some bullheads that made their way in there once when he was a kid, probably on birds' feet. And uh <laughs> um it was just like they, they put it in in an area that was naturally wet. <clears throat> and and uh, I think they used it mostly for their cows, you know, because it used to be sure. pasture back there. And it got overgrown and went out of use, of course. You know the story of the sad story of farming and what it's yeah. become in a lot of ways, you know. Um, but in that sense, it was kind of nice that it was just allowed to become this r- Eden of sorts, and uh so my explorations of the farm after I found that railroad trestle, I just got interested in everything the giant old cottonwoods that had you know you know like sixteen seventeen eighteen foot uh circumference, you know just yeah. just these enormous old trees and yep. and going up to that pond, and then finally we have this section of the farm that's called, we call it the, the piney woods because
2: mm-hmm.
1: my, uh, grandmother came from Wisconsin and, um, she, uh, you know, married grandpa and they moved or he, this is the farm. He was born, he was born in the house. He was sleeping in, or in the room. He was sleeping in until he yeah. moved a few years ago. And, uh, um, he so she moved down here, and her parents would bring they'd come and stay for a while, and they would bring little pine saplings down from Wisconsin with them. And uh, they planted like a hundred of these things back there in the timber, and today That's there's terrible. only a few left, you know, because they don't really match the ecotype here, <laughs> right. you know, here in, in southern Iowa, but they like this whole place just became this farm became magical to me at a young age and i wasn't even allowed to hunt yet Mm -hmm. and that turned into me tromping around with a bb gun and and pellet guns you know with my brothers (laughs) when we were you know like 12 and and that age you know and and the whole the the like The thing that like held me over until I finally got to go hunting when I was like 26 was all these wild spots. And then last year, I finally, I had taken one other deer on this farm. This Mm -hmm. farm is really, it's a great pheasant farm, but it's not, there's just not enough deer habitat, especially once the corn comes down to really hold a lot of deer here um, into deer season. But I had taken one other, like, button buck that I thought was a doe um, mm-hmm. back in 2019. And uh, it, it just bugged me that I hadn't tagged another, especially a nice buck, on this farm in all those years. Yeah. I had opportunities, and they just fell through my fingers. And But then it all, like, came together uh, last, last year. And this buck buck. Mm-hmm walked out and had never seen him before. I was hunting another buck that I I knew was bedding in there. And uh, this buck just, I think he was kind of going around checking some scrapes and 32 yards. I plugged him with the muzzleloader and he, he died probably, I don't know, 10 yards from the property line. And the fact that the whole thing began and ended right there on that farm (laughs) was so like i i hope to kill an elk someday i hope to kill a (laughs) moose someday i hope to kill an antelope i hope to kill a black bear you know i on and on down the list right but none of it none of it will match what that moment meant because of where it happened and uh i I, I mean it for all the reasons that all the backstory that goes into it and so it's it's I don't know I I like to say I I try to live close to the land and I think that that's what we've really been establishing in this this conversation that two of us like to do mm-hmm. and uh you got anything to to maybe add to that with some of your own experiences
0: um I got a, a kind of a cool thing that happened to me this past shed season. So, uh, my wife's family have been hunting deer for as long as anybody can remember since they were here to hunt really. Hmm. And so there's, some um, there's some skull plates nailed up in a couple of the barns in different places. And there's one sure. that's really wide and it's just, it just sticks out to you. It's just not your typical rack. It's, it, it's easy to recognize, I guess I'd say. Um, you don't see the characteristics it has in any of the other racks that are hanging up or any of the sheds that are hung up in the barn or anything like that. And so I've always looked at this and thought it was a really neat, really wide, heavy rack and you know, just thought about what it would have been like you know, probably 30 years ago, when that buck was shot, what was running around here. Well, I was out shed hunting on the neighbors. I actually had permission on the neighbors in the other direction, and I was walking across a creek and looked down, and I saw, I was like, oh, that's, you know, a little piece of antler. I know that's a piece of antler. Hmm. So I reached down and grabbed it, and I pulled up a whole deadhead huh. that that was almost a carbon copy of this buck that was hanging up on the wall.
2: Really?
0: To the point where the ends of the main beams kind of stub and then have a little spike sticking up. Almost looks like a flathead screwdriver with a little spike sticking up. Almost identical. So I went and I, you know, I showed it to everybody. I was like, when was that buck shot that's on the wall? Who might have shot this one? I kind of pieced the story together as, you know, my wife's uh, great-grandpa shot the one that was on the wall in there in that same year one of her cousins shot this buck and didn't recover it and so wow. that's always been like oh we you know we shot that buck and finally well, I yanked it out of the mud and it's stained. it was stained so black from sitting there I mean it, it was probably 20 inches down into this creek bed, just in the wow. in the, in the of the sod mud pulled it out and nobody really wanted it. Oh, you can get rid of it. So I gave it to the the owner of that property who, you know, showed it to his son and his son's just now getting into archery and he was just over the moon. He's at that stage where he's crazy about deer and wants to go hunting. So I said, all right, John, well, this is yours now. And, you know, hopefully you can kill one that big one of these days. Yeah. And so I. He think he's got it hung up in his little archery spot in the garage with his bow and his target.
1: That's awesome.
0: And, uh, you know, I helped use that to foster a love of the outdoors and the kid, but yeah, it was just that whole thing was just, it was almost surreal as it was happening. And it, yeah. Just one, one example of something that happens like that around here to me all the time. It seems like, you know,
1: yep. <laughs> yep. No, that's, that's so cool. And that's where the, you know the natural history of the place kind of you get you get a little glimpse into it you know i often wonder <laughs> if i could if i could uh put on some magic glasses and see what <laughs> lies you know three feet below the surface of this entire farm and what yep. what lies you know five feet and and you know just like peel back the layers and and just see what all happened here since the beginning yep. of time it would just it would be so interesting to see and um you know when you find when you have a little story like that where you get okay well this is more recent history but it's it's pretty mm-hmm. pretty cool to to be able to draw those connections you know so
0: yeah yeah and we don't have those magic glasses but i mean the next best thing is just hop in the creek you know creeks and streams are great aggregators of history as good as we've got um to borrow from stephen king there are thin spots in history where you know you're going to get as close to the past as you possibly can yeah you know going back you know this uh carboniferous swamp that i've got back here is washed out by natural, uh, natural erosion. So yeah, you, you're just going to find any, if, if you want to know the history of a piece of property, just walk up and down the Creek a couple of times. And the good news is, as the old saying goes, it's never the same Creek and you're never the same man. So mm, you're always going to find good, something That's a good one. There.
1: That's a good phrase. I <laughs> that's like one that. My favorite. Yeah, let's talk about that a little bit because this is how I originally learned who Judd was. Uh, Trevor Schmidt, who's been on this podcast, uh, and probably back in episodes somewhere in the 30s maybe. Um, mm-hmm. uh, just a great guy. One of the most genuinely nice guys I've ever met. But um, uh, Trevor, when uh, he – so he's – good friends with a lot of guys from working class bow hunter. And uh, when he saw that uh, Judd's interview on the mammoth tusk came out, he's like, Kent, you need to listen to this. This is right up your alley. And boy, was he right. I, I listened to that on my way to go hunting here at the family farm back when I used to have to commute out here a couple hours. And I listened to it the whole way here and uh it's just a fascinating story. Um can you uh, t- tell the story. I know you've told it a million times and and uh if you're listening to this and you want to hear like the story really fleshed out and the whole topic uh go to the Prairie Farm podcast, the other podcast I host with my uh coworker Nicholas and yeah. uh it's the prehistoric prairie series. And uh, episode number one, I think it's like uh, episode number 42, maybe something like that, or 62, 52, somewhere somewhere in the 40s through 60s. It's in there. (laughs) But but, um, uh, Judd tells the whole story plus more, and you get more context on what all is going on. But can you tell the story of the mammoth tusk?
0: Yeah. So I was... In uh, September 2005, I was in a college biology lab, a uh, field lab, where we went up to this creek, and we're going to do some real basic rudimentary stuff, soil sampling, um, air quality, you know, water pH, stuff like that. Things that I had learned years before, so I was able to just fill out the little worksheet real fast and jump in the creek where I really wanted to be. Yeah.
2: Um
0: Funny thing was the weekend before that for extra credit in this class, I actually, um, cleared a trail to where we were and my professor and I stood on this gravel bar and talked about maybe finding fossils and, oh man, you know, I was a huge Jurassic park fan when I was a kid. I grew up on the trip, ground, <laughs> everybody's like, Oh, you're never going to find anything. But I tried, I tried all the time yep. to find stuff. And so years and years and years of hoping and wishing and practice finally paid off when I got into the creek and there's a couple of guys dragging a seine ahead of me in the creek going upstream. And they snagged it on something and yelled back, hey, watch out for this rock when you get up here. And they went on, on about their way. Well, I walked up to that spot, eventually got there. I had a uh, one of those canvas kick nets you know where it's got a really heavy canvas um mm. kind of a leave with a mesh bottom to it yep yep you ever mess with those yeah yep. i love those things yeah so my, my
1: college bio class
0: <laughs> oh man i i'd buy one if they weren't like 300 bucks i think yeah they're one. not cheap
1: <laughs>
0: so i'm kicking rocks and holding this net downstream and catching darters and stuff like that and Checking them out. I finally get up to the spot where these guys had snagged their seine and I hit it, hit the rock with my foot and kind of ran my foot along it. And in the sweeping arc, my foot, the end of my foot never left the rock. Yeah. And so I'm like, okay, this is a weird shape. Yeah. So immediately, you know, I kind of toss the net up on the bank and I walk over and I reach down and it's probably in two feet of water. When I was bent over um, and put my hands underneath it, I just about took water into my waders that I was wearing, if that gives any, <laughs> any indication of depth. Yeah. And so, you know, I, get, I felt it, and I'm like, okay, this has got to be like a long bone from something big, like a mammoth or a mastodon. It's got to be a humerus, a femur. This is all going through my head at yeah. the time. And I I roll it onto my hand, and as I pick it up, I had to roll it into the crook of my elbows because it was so heavy, I couldn't hold it in my hands. And we decided that I was just so jacked on adrenaline at this point of carrying it across the creek that I didn't realize that the thing weighed 160 pounds before it was dry. <laughs> just, just the middle section was 160 pounds. Whoa. So I fought it over and laid it out on the sandbar. And there was a gal that was in waiters just standing nearby. I said, You just stand right here and don't lose this spot for a minute. And so I went back and I grabbed the what was the tip section and laid it out next to the center section and then went back and found the root section and laid it down. And there was actually man. a second tusk that went down into the creek bed that I pulled out. And it was already split longitudinally. So oh. within a matter of hours, we'd already lost it. It just oh, turned into um, or ivory powder and bark ivory like you'd scrimshaw with. Yep. But, uh, we con- and, uh, so, okay, I got to think about where I'm at here. So I holler over to my professor. So I was like, I found a tusk when I picked up that initial, initial middle piece. And he was like, oh, it looks like it's part of a tractor tire. You should get back to work.
1: And we always
0: laugh about this. He's like, you are never going to let me live that down. Are you? Said, nope. Not a chance. So set it down and get all the pieces there. And I was like, Hey, come, come look at my tusk or my tractor tire or whatever. I was kind of being smart with him. And then he comes over. (laughs) You know, you talk about, like, oh, I'm going to have a stroke, this and that. Like, I actually thought I was watching my professor about to have a stroke. Just the physical reaction he had (laughs) to see in this was like, it was like paparazzi were taking (laughs) pictures. Right in his eyes, like he was blinking really hard and opening his eyes, and like you're like going you know, through really?
1: the you're going through you're the really? signs of a stroke <laughs>
0: thing. <laughs> yeah, he was reeling back and forth, and, it, and finally he was just like, "Oh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh!" And people started to come closer, and he's like, "No, everybody,
2: uh,
0: everybody get back to work. We've got stuff we've got to do. This is going to be great and, uh Oh, this is this is this is significant. Everybody, come look. Everybody, just come over here and look at it." <laughs> And so what's laying there on the sandbar is an 11 foot long. We didn't know at the time, woolly mammoth tusk, which is one of the bigger ones in North America at the very least. It's not possibly the biggest. Um, and so we contacted the Illinois state museum and it just so happened. Jeffrey Saunders, who was one of the nation's leading experts on proboscidians, uh, was there in residency. And so the next day he came over and he had instructed us to dig a trench, the shape of the tusk, and then line it with bisqueen and fill it with water and keep it wet because we would lose it if we didn't keep the thing wet. Oh, and so he, he came the next day and when he arrived, I mean, this guy has been to like Wrangell Island and Kamchatka where you can just Whoa. walk and pick up mammoth bones. Like that's yeah. my dream. I'd to yeah, go there.
1: That's where they have like the mini mammoths, right? Wrangle Island?
0: On on Wrangle, yeah. The dwarf so, the,
1: the dwarf mammoths.
0: The dwarf mammoths. They're in uh the Channel Island in California, I believe.
2: Okay. But
0: he sh- he shows up and this guy's seen some stuff. He shows up and I'm not exaggerating. He stood there for probably close to ten minutes just going wow 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 <laughs> you know, that had like,
1: to be a cool yeah. feeling
0: it was a very neat feeling and and we're all like yeah wow but what 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 is it what are we looking at here And he goes it's a mammoth tusk. it's clearly a mammoth tusk, given the curvature a mastodon tusk would be a lost trader he goes but we've got a problem you're going to have to find some molars or we're not going to know what kind of mammoth this is. Sure. Whether it's a woolly mammoth, a Jeffersonian mammoth, uh, probably not a Colombian mammoth, but it's huge. So maybe, um, and he's like, you're just going to have to keep looking for teeth. Um, we're going to do everything we can to stabilize this and begin the process of drying. But I mean, keep an eye out, he said. And so, We took the tusk back to the college, to Lincoln College, spent 18 months drying it out. In the meantime, my professor on December 26th of that same year, he went out to the creek and for some reason put on waders in the middle of the winter. He was by himself, walked out in that creek and kicked a rock. And he thought to himself, you know, if Jed was out here in the middle of this creek and he kicked a rock that big, he'd reach down and feel it. Well, he reached (laughs) down and he... Pulled up a football-sized molar. Oh
2: man! From what's
0: about to be a woolly mammoth, based on the the spacing of the, the enamel awesome. plates and the cementum between them. So now we've got this enormous woolly mammoth tusk. The the former uh, largest woolly mammoth tusk in Illinois was somewhere in the neighborhood of five and a half feet, found down by Galconda.
2: <laughs> Whoa.
0: And so this one's you know a four hundred pound eleven foot long chunk of ivory, and Jeff Saunders thanked me for resurrecting his career because I'm not sure how many papers we wrung out of that thing, but
1: yeah, <laughs> it was, yeah,
0: it was pretty interesting. So oh, that's yeah, cool. That is so cool. I, I,
1: that is it, so in cool. that
0: same stretch of river we found I've found musk ox bones, elk, bison, horse. Um, never found any camelids or anything like that. A buddy of mine who we talked to on the prehistoric prairie series found mm-hmm. a whole intact giant ground sloth skull. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That was, which that was un- insane.
0: Unheard of. This thing yeah. is so cool. Well, but, and, so and it's,
1: not, not only that, but stag moose antlers. Illinois uh, elk. Yep,
0: found, you know, most antlers, he's found yeah, a whole intact, like they just fell off this season, elk antlers. It's yep. wild what this section of creek yields. And it's just owing to the fact that it cuts deep enough and wide enough down to the gravel that you have the opportunity to find this stuff. Yeah, And it's just moving tons and tons of earth because... Everybody's taking out the buffer strips, and it's just eating into these farmers' fields to the tune of like twenty to forty yards a year. Wow! Uh, The soil they're losing, this creek losing a crazy amount. But so we we just let the creek do the digging for us. Um, But since then, Lincoln College has closed its doors. It's no longer an institution of learning. And yeah. uh, The, the land that was trusted in the college reverted back to the family that had tr- entrusted it in the first place. Okay. And so I still have permission to go down there and look, but it's, yeah, it's become a big part of my life, needless to say.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, man, the, the connection that you have to that now and <clears throat> just the, you know, the conjecture that goes into, that goes into, um, why is this thing here? You know, what, what did it, what did it go through? What did it see when it was walking across Illinois? What did, you know, what, how different is it now from then? All those things. Was there, Mm -hmm. you know, what was, was it possible that a, a hunter killed this, you know, this mammoth and, and ate from it? Is it, you know, all this stuff that, that endlessly dances around in our brains,
0: you know, Boy, and... well, here's something. I'm not sure if we got into this on the prehistoric prairie series, but that mammoth tusk and tooth had to be dated twice because we thought the first sample was contaminated.
2: Oh, yeah. They came yeah. back
0: eleven thousand three hundred years old. Wow. And so we had the uh, a section of the the molars root sawed off and sent in, and it corroborated that. Uh, date of 11,300 years old. Wow. And so that puts it at one of the last mammoths that was known at the time on the North American continent. Mm. Uh,
1: That's really interesting. And,
0: and we uh, we did a little bit of cross-referencing with some uh, pollen stratigraphy from the Chatsworth bog, which indicated that that area would have been a, instead of like, uh, the glacial front, like a tundra mm-hmm. or a step, it would have been more like um, a braided stream with black ash and spruce and, oh, there's another list of plants that I need to pull up and look at, but it was not the t- the, the typical uh, environment you would think you would find a woolly mammoth in. It was a yeah. lot woodier, probably a lot less grass. Um, yeah, that's really interesting yeah it may have been the end of that animal um as far as maybe he wandered too far into this this area right um, yeah because yeah. the
1: woolies they were believed to be more of a grassland tundra wide yep. open and then the jeffersonians those were the more of the woodland mammoths right they were kind of like in yeah. mastodons same deal they liked to they like to be in those forested areas, but yeah, maybe so. Maybe he was chased in there, you know, or you oh, know, you just, yeah, just, you just, you just wonder. And, and, uh, <laughs> I used to, I used to think and really it was before doing that series with you and Mitch and John, but also, uh, we talked to Dr. Meachin in that, and she kind of helped me understand. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, also, uh, Laura to cook, um, county conservationist from around here she also was a good help and i used to think okay they went to that water for a reason and they died there but then after talking with you guys i just i started to get it it's like well yeah that may be however the those specimens are preserved because a a anoxic Environment, which is mud in the bottom of a bog or a stream bed yeah. or something like that, preserves things. And uh-huh. ha- if that was the case for every square inch of this planet, we would find an endless stockpile of oh, yeah. remains because so much life has occurred on this planet that Uh almost every square inch, if it could preserve what had been there before, you would find evidence of it. And that is a very powerful thing to consider. And Uh so when we find things like this, it's just because there's been so many other things that have been here before us that have used this land for for you know, living as good of a life as they could, just like we all try to do. And, Uh and I think this is where the, this whole conversation comes full circle. You know, we choose where we go to live. And as hunters, we choose where we go to hunt because Uh somehow it, it appeals to us in a way that enriches our life. And, and, where I kind of want to wrap this up. So I have this question that I thought of um, when I was planning out this interview with you. I wanted to ask you, what has the land given to you? And why is it important that everyone think about and answer that question for themselves?
0: You know, the land, I probably owe everything that I am to the land, to be honest with you. My personality, mm. my my knowledge, my, um, my uh, how do I put this? Not a willingness, but like a need to share and to like teach and help people understand things. Mm. Like if I if I didn't have... This chunk of ground to run around on. I don't know that I would even be a person of interest. I'd probably come home from work and sit and play Xbox all night. But
2: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean. It's a, yeah. it's a
0: really important question to ask yourself. But I I feel like in my case, you know this this land is most of who I am right now. Mm. If 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 that kind of makes sense. Yeah, it totally. gives me. Gives me substance. It gives me, um, you know, a reason to to seek out new things, a means to seek out new things, because um, you know Illinois famously has so little public land around. Right. Um. But yeah, I just I feel like I feel like I'd be a completely different person without this chunk of land, and you know, being close to have been on it for you know their history. Yeah. So it's, it's, and it's very important for people to ask themselves that question too, because it's good to look inwardly at yourself like that. I think that's
1: all I got about that right now. (laughs) No, that's, that's spot on. That's, I mean, you made some really good points there. My, you know, it's funny that you said, said that the way you did, because like I, I, you know, I can't believe I haven't said this phrase yet in this interview, but both of us have a deep connection to place. Um, Mm -hmm. I want to know everything I can about where I'm at, generally speaking, um, Caleb and I, which I think you met Caleb at the deer classic, if I remember correctly. Um, I did. Yep. Yep. Great guy. Caleb and I are going Mm -hmm. on a mule deer hunt in the Sandhills knowing that it may or may not be the best place to get a mule deer in Nebraska. Yeah. Um, But it's the (laughs) Sandhills. It's the last prairie, so to speak. That's Uh its nickname, the last prairie. And that's why we're going there. You know? And and so – I've always had that deep connection to place my whole life, but I kind of lost my way from that for a while when, you know, you get, you get busy when you're in college, you're always studying, you're always doing projects, yeah. and all that junk. And then you get into your career and you're busy with that and adjusting to that. But then I finally, when I went hunting, it's like I, and and even a little bit before that cuz I started shed hunting before I started hunting. Um mm-hmm. and I I'd, I'd done, you know, the listeners know I'd done backpacking and tons of fishing and 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 that and and I so I've had those other activities in my life, but once I started hunting, that connection to place hit a feverous obsession for me. <laughs> and my yep. my wife you know kind of jokingly but also seriously has said that you became a lot more interesting once uh (laughs) you started caring (laughs) about all this stuff and it's true it's exactly like what you said you know it just it shaped it i i feel like i found myself you know when i when i fully jumped in with both feet and And, uh, you know, I've said it before and it's probably a little bit of an inflammatory statement, but I think you'd probably agree with me when like, there's a million things to do in the outdoors and on a piece of land, you know, you could be Mm -hmm. bird watching, you could be gardening, you could be, you could be, uh, riding ATV trails, you could be horseback riding, you could be farming, you could be, you know, all these things. Fishing even. Uh But I really think that other than maybe trapping, none of them connects you to that ground more than hunting does. Because now you are a participant in the living and dying that goes on on those acres. You are a part of that ecosystem. There's no throwing it back there's no cutting it loose there's no just passively observing and saying well that was nice you know you're there for keeps and you're there to exchange energy and matter and like <laughs> it like it once was you know and yep. that we've all but forgotten how to do in so much of modern living and yep. I think that's why it's so critically important that anyone listening into this try to, you don't have to nerd out on it like Judd and I do. Hopefully you just got a (laughs) nice little scary view into our brains and how they work. But you don't, you don't, you don't have to do that. However, I would encourage you to try and consider some of these things. Consider why am I here? Why, why am I looking at this? um, the way that I do and, and can I treat this as more than just something that can give me something, you know, that can give me a nice set of antlers or can give me uh, meat for my table or uh, can give me cool stories and experiences to look back on. Can, can I be a part of this place? Can I protect this place? And just like I talked about earlier, as long as, as my buddy Luke Fritch has something to say, those hedge trees are staying and yep. they they can't be taken away because he lives close to the land like Judd and I do. And a lot of other great hunters and outdoors people do that are out there. And, um, th- that's what really protects these places that we all love and the places that we want to hunt. And, and just enjoy what what the landscape has for us. So, <clears throat> Judd, thank you so much, man, for for walking through this. It was is really interesting episode. I mean, we it's just a great conversation. And and uh, thank you to the listeners for tuning into it. It's a totally different one, um, but I'm excited for you to hear it. And I I hope you get a taste of our passion for for the ground that we hunt and um you know if uh you're looking for your own piece i strongly suggest uh you again i'd like to direct you to the prairie farm podcast we interviewed skip sly from iowa whitetails um <clears throat> you can kind of hear how he's able to become a private landowner here in iowa but you could also uh, go talk to our buddy jake hofer over from exodus trail cameras he is a uh, hunting property, uh, real estate agent, realtor. He'll uh, walk you <coughs> through all that process, and I consider, you, or I would ask you to consider um, checking that out for yourself. Because if you don't have a place that you can really tie into, uh, and maybe you do on public land, that's great too. There's people that have really deep connections to public ground, especially out west. But um, uh-huh. you know, find a way to to set your route somewhere. And have, have your own place. But, but yeah, thanks again to uh, Judd, and thank you for tuning in. Do remember this podcast is presented by Spartan Forge. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. I really want to tell you about a new feature on Spartan Forge that you can take advantage of if you have the full version. And that is the Blue Force team aspect of the app. What is the Blue Force team? Well, that is something that I think we've all probably wished existed um, when we're hunting a uh, either a piece of public land or a piece of private land with a buddy or more. And you wish they could just see your waypoints, so you don't have to go through and share every waypoint with them. You wish they could <clears throat> pull up, that exact same map that you have on your phone while you're talking about it and kind of go over a game plan. Well, that's what blue force team is. If you share a property with a hunting buddy who also has Spartan forge, they can, they can get onto that property and see all your waypoints, see all the information you want them to be able to see, and you can put together a good plan for hunting the property. So you get that if you subscribe to Spartan Forge. You can do so either monthly, which is $7.99 a month, or uh, for the year, like I do, Caleb does, Alex does, for $39.99 a month. You get, I believe, all 50 states, at least the the, the 48 main ones. <laughs> you get you get those mm-hmm. ones for sure. You get property boundaries and, and all that, and and um, all the different mapping layers, just a phenomenal tool. You can go to my link tree my instagram bio and and uh go to spartan forge there and download the free version of the app and then like i said go and subscribe sorry i'm I'm choking on uh side oats grama dust tonight we were cleaning that all day today at (laughs) work but um uh uh, you can get that, and of course the deer behavior prediction, which Spartan Forge really is known for, and uh, all the other intel features that go into that. So check that out. They are the presenting sp- sponsor. So proud to be working with them, and and just very fortunate to be on the team with Bill and and everyone else there at Spartan Forge. And then also Alex from East West Hunts. He just had, uh, well, you just heard his episode. If you tuned in last week to how his uh, previous two Western hunts went this year. Uh, He just tagged out on uh, antelope, um, like, I think within the first 10 minutes of the season. Uh, And uh, his client, Edwin, who is with him as well, uh, tagged out. And uh, Alex put together a perfect hunt plan for them. So you want to get a hunt plan like that for yourself, go to eastwesthunts.com. Do a free consultation with Alex. He'll tell you if what he has to offer is what you need. And if it's not, he'll tell you that too. Um, but I think if you have a hunting dream of your own anywhere um, that you just don't have time to put in all the work uh, uh, with putting the plans together, applying for the points and the tags, it's a lot of work. <laughs> and uh, uh, if you need some help with that, Alex is the best one to talk to. So go to East West Hunts, tell them this podcast sent you, and uh, you'll save yourself 10%. And then finally, uh, business that Judd and I both think as highly of as possible, old barn taxidermy. Um, man, it doesn't get any better there. And, uh, I think Judd will agree with me on this one. Bad taxidermy is like the worst. I mean, (laughs) you see bad taxidermy and that's all you can think of every time you see it, you cannot unsee it and it just spoils the whole thing. Um, and in, in the end, those those are the mounts that just get the antlers cut off and your kids use them to rattle in another buck someday. But yeah. <laughs> you just go and get it done the right way, okay? Go to Old Barn Tax and you can find a link for them in the show notes like you can for East to West Hunts and Spartan Forge. And uh, tell Sam or Colton, probably talk to Colton. Colton's kind of the front desk guy. But <clears throat> tell him that the First Gen Hunter podcast sent you there. And uh, that's really good feedback for them and for me. And uh, get yourself the best quality mount possible. Over 500 whitetail shoulder mounts go through Sam's shop every year. And uh, that, that doesn't even get into the turkeys and the fish and the bears and the elk and the muleys. That's just the whitetails. So all those other things you can get done at Old Barn as well. Uh, mountain lions i think almost every time i go in there Judd. maybe you've seen the same thing there's usually a mountain lion that somebody got usually yep and it's (laughs) it's always cool to see those sam does it all he's been doing it for i believe almost 40 years and uh he is as good as it gets and it does not leave the shop until his stamp of approval is on it and uh you you'll want to do it Right, so go to Old Barn Taxidermy again. You can find the link in the show notes. To tell them I sent you there. Well, thanks again, Judd. Thank you, everyone. Please uh, tell your friends about this podcast and uh, leave us a five-star review if you enjoyed it uh, on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. That really helps get First and Hunter out to more people. Well, until next time, everyone. Take care and take someone hunting.